ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. John Owen is here today. John Owen's story is in many ways one of those classic migrant success stories. He came to Australia with his family as a small child. He survived playground racism at school and went on to become a high achiever, but not quite in the way that his parents expected. John has chosen for himself a life of, as he puts it, intentional downward mobility. He was near the end of his computer studies course at Melbourne Uni when he decided to volunteer for a Christian group helping marginalised people. Within a short time, John had left university, taken a vow of poverty, and begun helping people on the fringes, homeless people, drug addicts, people fresh out of prison. But John wasn't just working with them at a distance. He was living with them too. John got married. He moved to Sydney, where he and his wife Lisa began taking in people into their home in Mount Druitt, in the outer western suburbs. Sometimes they'd have more than a dozen people living with them. Lisa and John fed them and gave them a place to call home for a time. And today John Owen is a pastor and the CEO of Sydney's Wayside Chapel in King's Cross. Hello, John. Hello, Richard. You were born in Malaysia. Tell me how it is that your arrival on Earth nearly didn't quite happen, John. Well, I was uh, not quite an Irish twin with my sister, who's 14, 15 months older than me, uh, 13 months older than me, sorry. Irish uh, twin. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Mum uh, uh, was not feeling very well after having a newborn, so she went to the doctor who uh, advised her, and I think he was probably a little bit concerned that maybe he'd left an instrument or two inside of her <laughs> and recommended, uh, without any tests, a DNC. Uh, which is quite an invasive procedure. And what happened next was as he left the room, one of the nurses quite hesitantly came forward, didn't want to speak in front of the doctor, and she said, can we just do one other test before we proceed with this uh, operation? And mum said, sure. And so she said, uh, gave her a little pregnancy test and she said, I think we've found the source of the problem. <laughs> and... Voila. If she had that later. operation, my God, that might have been the end of you then, I this suppose. This would have been one of the shortest conversations oh. on record, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then shortly after that, the family moved to Australia. What was the motivation for that, John? Dad and Mum really wanted us to be able to not only get the best education that was on offer, but also to be able to to in whatever profession we chose to pursue, to be able to do it in a country and a society that was unfettered by perhaps, shall we say, some of the corruption. Uh, you know, Dad was a lawyer and uh, the practice of law often involved back in those days in the country where I was born, needing to know the right people and to make sure that the right people were getting the right amounts of uh, brown envelopes being right. handed their way. So that was Dad, it was more of a push factor for Dad to be able to say, I want to be able to see how good a lawyer I am, you know, free from all those fetters, but also, you know, who wouldn't want to give all the best opportunities they could to their families. Were they ready for the move? No, they weren't ready at all. Dad was uh, had this great grand plan uh, to move and then uh, he was ha in conversation with one of his good friends who said, I know it's pretty easy to migrate to Australia in the 70s, but they're just about to bring in a whole new set of requirements. So you've got about three or four weeks to get your affairs in order oh. <laughs> and you'll be able to do a straight shot. So Dad said, let's do it, which is 
if you know my father, he is the least impulsive person you have ever met. And so it was quite a bold, brave and courageous move. But ultimately uh, didn't quite work out in the short term how he'd planned. Is that why your mum decided to move back with the kids for a little while, back to Malaysia until things were set up? Effectively, we moved into dad's sister's basement and uh, mum had moved from a community where she was surrounded by family. And let's be honest, there, there were maids in, in the family who would be there to support not only the raising and the feeding of mum's uh, growing brood, but also to be able to have all the kind of community connection and support she had. And so we went from Malaysia, Batu Caves, family, generations in there to uh, Avondale Heights basement right. in the Melbourne, middle of Melbourne. Melbourne, Melbourne, right. <laughs> and mum said, uh, right. you can keep this. Uh, I'm, I'm heading back to Malaysia for a little while while you get the affairs in order and just at least get a job and get us out of your sister's basement because there still was some lag time before dad's qualifications could be recognised. So it was a while then, what, a year or so before you were able to return to Melbourne? What was it like when you arrived back at the airport and saw your dad after this long absence? Well, there's two things that happened at the airport that we still speak of to this day. Is The first thing is mum was clearing customs and she's quite an attractive woman. I was assured by every parent-teacher interview teacher that, uh, <laughs> gee, your mum's good looking. I think they were saying that, saying, you're not much to look at, John. <laughs> Uh, is uh, John English grabbed me at the airport. And John English? Me. Yes. The singer? Yeah, the pirate of Penzance and uh, grabbed me off my mum, which is apparently a fine thing to do. Well, what, what was he doing? That, what, was he, what, what, what was that about? He, he was coming back from a tour or something right. and he grabbed me and he gave me a big kiss as we walked through immigration. They should and... have him at the airport all the time doing that. What a nice idea. Uh, and then I saw my father. And I looked at him, I, you know, this is before the internet and I was about 18 months to two years old and I looked at him and said, hello, uncle, how are you? Oh, dear, you daddy, <laughs> must have you must have been devastated. Oh, dear. So, so once you were settled properly in Melbourne, then how did the family start to expand? What kind of siblings did you get? Well, mum and dad had two more kids. So they have the Indian kids, we call them, and the Aussie kids. Uh, so my two younger sisters, Shimona and Shobana, and I also had my older sibling, Shamala. They ran out of inspiration when they came up with the name John, let me tell you. <laughs> You're making me laugh too much in this interview. So they, they always said that, uh, you know, they, uh, we, me and my older sister, if we could have anyone's parents, we'd have the younger two's parents, right? We had to break all the rules, cop all the consequences, and mum and dad had been kowtowed into submission for the younger two. So it was you, your mum, and a family, a whole bunch of sisters. That must have created an inter- interesting gender dynamic. Were you kind of like the the little prince or the guy just getting the scraps at the end of the table then after all that, John? Well, we've got to throw grandma into the mix. Oh, Mum's grandma mum too. eventually right. came over. So it was, and dad was flat out. So I, I really saw him in my childhood. He was running a small business and providing for the family. So I was raised by five of the strongest women, maternal female figures you could ever imagine. So what I learnt through that time was how to make myself scarce and to get out of the way when the emotions got hot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great run. I can't complain. To be surrounded by doting women, I, I would just beg my sister as adolescence kicked in to bring their friends around and I would, you know, accidentally swagger through the house. And so I, I, I got the best of it. I, no complaints, except I didn't know how to play sport, which is kind of a sin in Australia. And I didn't know how to tackle or wrestle or fight properly, you know, and I, there was never enough time in the playground to hurt someone's emotions the way I saw my sisters do it. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're going to bash me, but no. gee, those jeans don't suit. No. <laughs> so then you go to primary school. And were there many kids who looked like you in the playground? I mean, Australia was pretty multicultural by then, but was your class or your school 
Multicultural? I don't know which part of Australia was multicultural by then, but it certainly wasn't the school I went to or the suburb I went to in Rosanna, where mum and dad eventually settled. There were two or three other kids. I mean, part of the ethnic, uh, in air quotes, cohort was a Greek boy and uh, also one other young uh, boy who uh, had cerebral palsy. So we were considered the, um, the, the ones who were different in the school. And what did that mean for you? in terms of being bullied in that school? There was one particular bully in the school who was deeply, he was, I mean, just, he was six foot, you know, biology is destiny, right? He was always an angry, moody character and he was the tallest kid and he used to wear these Ashford wash, stone wash denim gear all the time to school. And if you upset him or if you were the first kid he saw walking through the gates when he was having a bad day, it was almost a guarantee that you would be the one who would cop the brunt of his anger and frustration. And how, would he, pick a, and how would he pick a fight? Would he, would he do the classic, would you say about my sister or something or, or something like that? How would he, how would he just, would he just walk up and hit you or, or what? He would just walk up and hit you and he always knew the perfect spot to hit you that you would lose all of your breath in one shot. So he'd whack you in the guts and then you'd say, how does that feel? And you'd go, I feel fine. And, you know, and uh, you knew it would start from that moment. And so me and the other two kids, I mean, the, the kid, um, beautiful Mike with cerebral palsy, he, he, he never copped the hidings, but it was me and the other kid. And if we, if we were in, in the, in the site, so uh, it'd be our turn to, for the kids to go around in a circle and to gather around to protect. It was the 80s in Australia. I don't know what the staff were doing in the staff room, probably just having cigarettes and cups of coffee or something back then, but no one was doing yard duty. And and pretty quickly this group of uh, people would surround us so he could just beat us up and have his way. Right, he had a fan club, did he? He had a fan club around him while he was doing this stuff? Yeah, well, a whole bunch of people that now I look back and say they were probably just uh, just relieved he wasn't going for them and were just wanting to not upset him either. How influ- influential was this bully on your day-to-day life? Well, me and the other kids, we used to try and uh, apportion out the beatings. <laughs> So we said, okay, I've, I've copped it twice this week. Hopefully there's no more this week, but next time can you be the one that jumps in if he's in a bad mood? So we used to try and share it out a little bit through that time because it just wasn't pleasant. It wasn't fun. And, you know, I, I don't have many memories from early childhood, but that, that is a vivid one of being lying on my back, being sat on, on, on the chest. He used to sit on your chest and he would hit you in the head and pretend to do, and this is showing our age here, he's the typewriter, which was oh, yeah. bang, 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 bang on the head and then a whack to the side of the head. And, you know, it was um, still to that moment I can see the faces of everyone just staring down at me, me looking up, feeling utterly, utterly helpless. Was this a big contrast between the danger of school and the safety of home? Mm. Home certainly provided me with a place of refuge in that I didn't need to be anything other than who I was in that space, whereas Often walking out of the door, I would have to kind of breathe in deeply and put on an imaginary suit of armour just to cope through the day. And that wasn't just from people like the bully, but also is who am I expected to be? One of the things my dad would always say to me is, you know, you know, be careful how you act because everybody judges our, our people by how they see you behave, which I think in hindsight, is an incredible burden to place the expectations of a billion-odd people onto a six-year-old's shoulders. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
as yes. they go out. The, 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 if there's only one good thing that can ever come out of those things is that mm. you've, you're forced at a young age to figure out who you are, mm. aren't you? You're not going to – you can't find safety in numbers. Mm. So you have to really understand who you are in, when you understand that you're not going to be part of that group. Richard, I wish I'd taken that path, but what I tried to do was, I mean, listen to me, this is one of the most ochre Aussie accents you could yeah. possibly want to hear, is I tried to pretend I wasn't who I was. And so I put on this Aussie accent, I tried to play cricket really well, I tried to play football really well, I tried all the badges of honour that society could ever afford the upper echelon of Aussie white puberty blues kind of Australia, which was the caricature of the image that I grew up with. And uh, I pushed and I pushed and I expended all my energy. One of my vivid memories of childhood would be I'd occasionally run past a mirror and I would look and I'd say, who's that black kid? I don't know who he is and just keep running. Could you tell your parents what was going on? I tried at various stages, but it was a different era, different understanding. I I remember once coming home from school talking to mum and saying, Mum, I just want to tell you about my day. And, and mum said, oh, why would you want to do that for? I I talked to my friends about my day. <laughs> she It was just an offhanded comment. But, and it's nothing about her. But, you know, I, I pretty soon learned to just absorb it and, and to hold it all in. Did you find out what became of that guy who'd bullied you all those years? Yeah. Again, hindsight's a, a thing that gives a lot more perspective in life. But, you know, his father was a a very wounded and hurt Vietnam veteran and had a lot of unprocessed post-traumatic stress disorder. He eventually, uh, his father eventually uh, died by suicide and I followed that young boy into high school and uh, he was the first of our graduating year out of high school to also die and he also took his life by suicide. I wonder if we can assume that that some of that violence is being sort of transmitted down mm. and some kind of chain that we don't really know, I suppose. Mm. But what's really sort of more interesting in some ways, though, is the, the acolytes, the people standing around, not, not helping, maybe cheering him on. Does that give you a kind of a view of what people can be like in a bad situation? The fact the bully's doing what the bully do, does, but the people around watching, not intervening or even maybe cheering him on? I always wanted just one of those acolytes just to break ranks and to step forward and say, hey, enough's enough, please stop. But it, it never happened, Richard. And uh, I think, you know, often we say that uh, we learn about who we want to be through the image of mentors and others around us that we see modelling that behaviour. But there was a little part of me that said, what did I not receive and how do I be that? as I grow and develop? How do I be the person that breaks through the norm, that steps into the middle of a situation like that and says, hey, enough's enough? Was your family a church-going family throughout your childhood in Melbourne? Yeah, my, my family found a church before we found a home, really. That was a big part of our narrative and our journey. Mum and Dad both came from Hindu-Buddhist families. That uh, There was a quite a powerful conversion moment for the oldest male in both households. And so by edict, we were Christian. And you can see the way different family members grapple with that in different ways. Uh, you know, being Malaysia and Singapore as the countries of origin, as you walk into houses, you'll see, as in many Southeast Asian homes, a couple of shrines to a couple of different gods. It's called a, uh, we call it a, uh, you know, a cover or protection insurance <laughs> kind of policy. 
<laughs> you say, you know, if, at least if I've got one of these right or half of this right, you know, maybe we'll do okay. And so, but you can see the way people have grappled with that in my my family over the years. And what kind of gospel was preached to you in, the, mm. in those churches you went to in Melbourne as a kid? It was It was a wonderful little community right in the middle of the CBD in Australia, in, in Melbourne. It was right next to Melbourne Central, actually. You know, I have vivid memories of throwing old beer bottles at the old clock tower, which was just in an abandoned parking lot that's now a heritage listed uh, facility. And it was literally the only the only two places open in the city back then was the church that we were in and um, Chloe's Tavern down the other end of the city. <laughs> so uh, both ways to uh, somehow get the spirit. But it was a lot of Southeast Asian families there. So it was a lot of belonging and solidarity to say, you know, we acknowledge that most of your week you're out of your comfort zones and here's a place we can worship God. And very much though, the teaching was, well, the culture was definitely saying, we follow a God that maps onto the highest values of our culture, which is parental obedience and academic and vocational success in all ways. Right. So you followed that line and despite the bullying and you got the marks to get into uni. Tell me, tell me, John, why it was that your first day at Melbourne Uni was so particularly exciting for you as a new undergraduate. One of the most exciting moments of my life was the first day of university because it was a day I finally discovered the course that my mother had enrolled me in. <laughs> And when I tell that, most people laugh because they think I'm joking. You're not joking? I was not joking. <laughs> so so you went to uni that day going, oh, I wonder what course I'm doing, what, what degree I'm pursuing, and, and, and what was that? What was it was that quite degree? embarrassing to walk around to each faculty saying, John Owen. Oh, no. Oh, no. Really? It was like that? <laughs> it was like that. It was a choose-your-own-adventure. Am I, am I enrolled no. here? Oh, dear. What were you enrolled in? Computer science and electrical engineering. Right. So okay. a bachelor Classic. of both. Right. Yeah. And and were you at all interested in that? Was that going to be something that was going to work for you, do you think, at that stage? I can't even change a light switch. All oh, right. Okay. <laughs> like, okay. I didn't even get it right. A light globe. I suppose this is what, the 80s, early 90s by now we're talking about, yeah, isn't it? So, early 90s Okay, so th- there was definitely a path, though, for future mm. prosperity if you'd stayed with that and pursued that. Did you associate security with money in those days? I did. You know, you know please don't judge me, but my 16-, 17-year-old uh, psyche said that uh, after growing up being so exposed to the whims of bullies and uh, people who are there to hurt you because you are different from them in some way... I, you know, the the best way I can never have to feel vulnerable or hurt or unsafe again is to make as much money as I can so everyone around me just stands in awe when they see me. Yeah, so build I a castle in the suburbs yeah. and keep the barbarians at the gate, that Correct. kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Yeah. So aside from computer science and engineering, you began to study theology as well while you were at uni. What parts of the, the Bible were you attracted to that were you really were sort mm. of suddenly finding yourself drawn into? Well, they tell you to study one non-technical subject in that degree, so I thought I'll just pick a Bible subject and ace it. And I, so I thought I'll pick something that all these lefties on campus with ponytails who march around, uh, something about justice and uh, that we find in the Hebrew scriptures. And so I studied a subject called Pentateuch and the pre-exilic prophets. And, Which we're uh, all deeply familiar with. <laughs> Which one of us were, like I'd ask you to, I, I just feel like perfunctory to ask you to explain that since we all know what it is anyway, but uh, <laughs> what, is that, what does that mean? Oh, no, well, it is just basically looking at uh, some of the key scriptures through the Old Testament and uh, with the Pentateuch and the Torah and some of the uh, prophetic literature that we find in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And But we, I looked at the minor prophets, Amos particularly, and I grew up in a church where, you know, we spoke about earlier, but also the focus 
focus was on worship and this beautiful kind of raising of your voice and your gifts to God. And then there was this passage in that whole thing that says, I can't listen to your songs because your lives have nothing to do with working and devoting your life to justice for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalised. I am this kind of God who cares deeply for the hurting and the vulnerable. And I just couldn't, I'm a terrible singer anyway, but I just couldn't bring myself to raise my voice in church for the next year. And it really sparked a whole different interest and passion in me at that point. Were you trying to pull away from that old idea of security or did you think there might be kind of different kind of security or freedom in in the kind of things that were being spoken of there in those passages in the Bible? Look, I was only a year from completing the degree. I was ready. I could see the path ahead. I could see where it was heading. I could see the rewards it would bring. And yet every night as my head hit the pillow, I couldn't sleep. I was thinking, is that all there is? Is that all there is? You know, I I can't bring myself to say that would be a good or satisfying life. And so what these scriptures kind of elicited in me was it, it created a whole new set of possibilities and hopes and imagination for living a life of purpose over a life of prosperity. So you're nearly at the end of your degree and then you heard about a group in Melbourne called Urban Neighbours of Hope. How did you hear about them and what kind of work were they doing? Campus life was pretty vibrant back in the 90s and this uh, this soapbox was available. Anyone could get up and speak. And this one guy got up and says, you've all made it. You're all in university in Australia in the 90s. You know, you're the top 1%. Half of you aren't even paying hex yet. You know, he said, well, how about from your selfish lives, you all take off one year and just give your life away. And uh, so I thought I could do that. You know, and he said, and you know, if, if that doesn't change it, you, you, you've only given a year, you'll get a full discount and a refund on everything you've done that's selfless and you can go back to being selfish. <laughs> so I thought I'll give that a go. And half of the kids that got for, went forward went to um, places like in Southeast Asia or Africa where they could, you know, get photos of holding brown babies. But I thought I want to go out to the Western suburbs and hold a white baby. <laughs> <laughs> do something like that. <laughs> so what did you do? So I found this group that was out in Melbourne in the southeastern suburbs and they not only lived the ways I was wanting to live and cared for others, working with asylum seekers, refugees, also people who are on the streets with heroin, they also um, shared their homes. So it was always from a place of hospitality. So it was a really embodied, incarnated way of saying, you know, good news isn't something, if you just get your life together, you'll be out of this place. It's to say we can find hope here in the darkness. Oh, hospitality is a very powerful idea, isn't it? Very, very powerful. You know, uh, as we say, we are who we eat with. <laughs> and, uh, you know, often we see people who say, oh, I care for this, I care for that, I care for this. But you look at their dinner table and that's a real mark of, because around a meal, it's a very equalizing moment. And it's about who we are and whose we are and to whom we belong. And so to share a meal with someone who has just run to Australia from a war-ravaged country seeking asylum, to someone who has grown up through intergenerational trauma and abuse, who has come to rely on heroin to survive, and to, to share a meal in that space is a very humbling and viscerally powerful moment. You're talking there about people who are refugees from war-torn places, and one of those semi-war-torn places was East Timor at the mm. time, which was suffering quite greatly, and life was becoming more and more intolerable there. What do you remember from that time and the kind of people you met? Who, who really stuck out for you among the, amongst those East Timorese refugees you were working alongside? There was one young girl, particularly. We were a part of the Sanctuary Network. And so I was invited to, our team was invited to uh, run some activities for some of the young people. And we ran a bit of a youth club. And there was a really powerful moment that I think really helped cement the direction my life was moving in. She was 
12 at the time. It was heading to Christmas. And we said, uh, you know, we had a few activities. And then we said, okay, what are your hopes and dreams for Christmas? And she stepped forward, this young girl, holding a little uh, teddy bear at the time. And uh, at the time, rumours were about, again, being deported uh, back to East Timor. This is pre-independence. So that would have been imprisonment and definitely worse for many teenagers at the time. And she just said, uh, can you just pray that we're not deported because I'm not ready to die yet. And it was in that moment that my life changed. If I was ever praying, God, please help this girl, it, the prayer then changed to God, help me be a part of the answer to the cries on the heart of this young person. And that kind of was that moment that we became very politically engaged and it wasn't driven for any desire to an anti, you know, I say any anti energy is, is, is great rocket fuel to get you off the ground, but it'll burn your engine out pretty quickly. But it was more driven by a conviction that uh, what wouldn't I not do for this brother or sister of mine? And so every time we were tempted to go to the verge of burnout, we would always pull back and it was from that moment with that little girl who's now a full Aussie bogan, ute-owning, gym, calorie-counting, protein, you know, person. But at that moment, she was just this vulnerable girl whose life was on the line at that moment. There aren't yeah. many Australians who really know what that means to have to pack up and leave now, go now and leave because the family will be killed if, if you stay. It yeah. must be hard to sort of impress that upon people who've not known that kind of a, a life. Not, not most in uh, in Australia. I think maybe in, in Sydney and the Blue Mountains, they know what it's like to be on tender hooks for bushfire mm. kind of alerts. But uh, these are con, you know completely natural kind of things. But no, most of us just cannot grapple with what that would even begin to mean. And were you able to sleep better once you started doing this kind of work? That was uh, literally the, the day after I moved in. I've never once had my head hit the pillow and, and I've suddenly sprung awake being with, plagued with the thoughts of, am I meant to be doing this in life? It was always, yep, this is what you're meant to be doing. Podcast broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. John, you were telling me before about how you were taking a year off uni to work with uh, some refugees, and the one that really moved you was this uh, small girl from East Timor who asked you to pray for her so that she wouldn't be deported because she wasn't ready to die. What did that mean? What kind of life choice did you take on for yourself as a result of that? I just wanted to be someone who would walk with someone through some of the darkest moments of their lives and to do everything I could within my power to stop focusing on advancing myself and my life and my career and to be able to do everything I could for this, this one little little girl and her family and community. Did that mean dropping out of computer science, the course your mum chose for you at uni? Never went back. So I have a permanent reminder in the form of a hex debt. 
<laughs> for those four and a half years of study there, but did go on to uh, complete a Bachelor of Social Work and uh, am bumbling my way through a theology degree as well. I think it would be incredibly cool if you never paid that hex debt. Given you'd given your whole life over to community service, it would be amazingly cool if that was some kind of strange subsidy, but even if it wasn't, I, that's, just, that's just me. How did your dad react when you told him you were dropping out of computer science? Well, because a lot of their life had been, we moved here for you, particularly our only son who is meant to provide, regardless of the fact that my three beautifully named and talented sisters all had university degrees and professional careers themselves was, you know, there was a little bit of shock and loss of how could you go this way? How could you, uh, you know, betray the reason we moved everything here for and so it took him a little while, it took our relationship quite a, a while to heal. It, it's in a beautiful place now, but first it was met with misunderstanding saying, I think you've betrayed the origins. You know, we follow this Jesus guy and we also follow this uh, education kind of track. And so they're one and the same. And so, but I was always say, you know, but this guy we're talking about also was homeless. And so um, I'm trying to kind of find that out first before I go anywhere else. Did taking on this commitment mean taking some kind of vow of poverty or, or just an obligation or, or is it a vow? Simplicity, service and obedience were our commitments, our common lifestyle commitments. We were a Protestant missionary order like Catholic orders, you know, poverty, service and obedience. So the Henderson Poverty Line is a measure that's published quarterly by the Melbourne University. So we committed to living at or below that level while we were in, involved in the work there. So you went to work at a needle exchange and... Mm -hmm. Was that work like for you? Had you ever known heroin addicts? Had you any familiarity with that that life? Yeah, that wasn't a radical departure for me. We grew up in in Melbourne with family members who had struggled with addiction, particularly uh, relying on heroin uh, to cope from day to day, and so saw the firsthand impacts of what that can do to someone's life and to not only their relationships but to their health. And had many uncles who have suffered with the complications and ultimately passed away from pre-interferon treatments and new treatments to die from complications regarding hep C. How did you meet your new wife, your, not your new wife, but your, life, your wife, Lisa, who's been with you all this time, who became your wife? Well, I was uh, in the house running uh, with a couple of guys, helping guys who were on the streets, getting off, doing some home detoxes, uh, you know, what was that, train spotting style, yeah. <laughs> just locking rooms up in buckets. <laughs> and she was a couple of streets away, tagging in women who were, and children who were escaping family and domestic violence. So, you know, you could say it was love at first crisis. Right. So was she on this kind of highly ambitious downward <laughs> mobility trajectory like you mm. as well? Yeah, she was there before me. But pr prior to that, she was studying medicine because she really wanted to give her life as a local community GP. And we really need more local community GPs as the first line of health care for our communities and societies. And just at the time she was studying medicine, they changed the Medicare provider numbers to almost render that kind of career path impossible for her. So she uh, joined this organisation because she just wanted similar to me, to be a part of changing the world by being placed in a community. And what were your first dates like? <laughs> I, one of the first dates I ever had, she said, we're going to have to be at home today. I said, oh, that's not too bad. I'll, I'll bring something around. And uh, she wasn't alone. There were three toddlers there with her that was a deep, dear friend of hers who um, she was struggling with 
a life of substance dependence. Often her three kids would get neglected in that, in her, she loved them dearly, but she just didn't have the capacity to care for them. And she would often put them to bed at two or three in the afternoon and just lock them in their rooms and feed them. Uh, they called it mockfish, which is fried dough. And so they would often come to Lisa full of nits and constipation. And so our second or third date was spent feeding these kids lots and lots of watermelon and delousing their hair and massaging their distended little bellies. And I just looked at this woman and uh, Lisa and thought, gee, you're so much better than me. <laughs> How did you propose to him? Well, I, uh, we were living on the poverty line, so I couldn't really afford a nice ring. So I went down to the milk bar and, you know, those 40 cent machines that you twist yeah. and twist and twist. And I twisted and twisted and twisted until uh, a ring came out, a little yellow ring with a smiley face on it. But because I'm not cheap, Richard, I gave her the four Super Bowls that I got <laughs> in the first try. <laughs> that must have been hard. Those Super Bowls are really cool. That's right. <laughs> And where did you go on your honeymoon once you got married, John? Well, Lisa was very passionately clear that we weren't just a boy meets girl, fall in love and sail off into the sunset. It's about two people who are passionate about changing the world are brought together and will continue and start their life together as in the way they want to continue it. So um, it wasn't in all the brochures uh, as a popular honeymoon destination, but we ended up in Mother Teresa's home for the dying in Calcutta. <laughs> what about- what have you got against resorts, John? What, what have you got against them? I wanted to get a suntan on the beach in Fiji, mate. Don't worry about that. I'm, that's what I wanted. How extraordinary. What was the atmosphere like? For oh, it time? was life-changing again. You walk into a room where there are people in the last moments of their life and they're surrounded by some of the world's most stunning backpackers, you know, who could be doing anything and nowadays would be on TikTok or on uh, Instagram showing off the secret destinations and they could be doing anything, but they were each there choosing to do whatever that person in front of them needed, which was sponge baths, uh, toileting, feeding, uh, changing nappies, what massaging of emaciated bodies. It was just one of those moments where it distill, it pushes out all of the problems that you have and all the worries you have in an increasingly affluent and democratically uh, capitalistic society. And it says, this is what we're meant to be doing. So you and Lisa had two daughters and decided to move to Sydney, to the outer western suburb of Mount Druitt. What was the plan? There was no plan. <laughs> we got in the car with two kids, a couple of suitcases, nowhere to stay. Uh, but we were so driven by the conviction that this is what we were meant to be doing next, that we had not a doubt for a single moment that as we moved on the path that things would happen, and they did. You know, halfway up the highway, we got the offer of uh, a caravan to use. And then another few kilometres on, someone rang up and said, if you need to put a caravan in the front yard, you can put it in the front yard. And you're just one step along the way. You know, we'd already uh, connected with the former pastor and CEO of Wayside, Graham Long, saying, hey, 
where is it in Sydney? No one wants to live. And he said, oh, I know all the, all the best spots. I'll take you. <laughs> and so we went on this kind of opposite real estate tour of Sydney and uh, we f- threw a few spots and independently of each other, Lisa and I saw this place in Mount Druitt called Bidwell. And, and the moment we both drove into that square, we, we knew that was where we were meant to be next. I'm so conscious here as you're telling this is like being in some bizarro world where you're doing everything against what the culture is insisting you should do. You're doing this anti-real estate thing, which, which is... <laughs> Is a really fantastic thing to do. I, I don't know, hearing you talk about that, I'm not living it, of course, but uh, it, there seems to be a kind of freedom in this or not. I don't know. Or am I, is that just me imagining that? No, life's a daring adventure or it's nothing at all. You know, why, you know, I think it was, I think it was Doug Anthony Allstars that you used to often say, you know, you can crack in the sun or fade in the shade and it's up to you what you want to do. So I thought I'm going to crack in the sun. I don't know if we ever said that, but uh, I applaud the sentiment nonetheless. So in in Mount Druitt, you opened up your home as a kind of a safe house and a street kitchen. What kind of people were coming to you to come and stay? Yeah, so in that community, I Lisa went off and became a chaplain in Emu Plains Women's Prison, and I began doing some youth work in the, in the local community centre down there and uh, in uh, Bidwell there at the Uniting Church. And, and, so, and just to be clear, this is a part of Sydney where a lot of people who'd been in inner city social housing were mm-hmm. uprooted and moved out, 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 out mm-hmm. way where they could be, I suppose, out of sight, out of mind. And so in about the sixties and seventies, the uh, the slums of Surrey Hill and Glebe, there was some state government initiatives to order them to clear out those slums and they said we need to place these people in in other areas and this bold housing plans in Campbelltown and Mount Druitt were conceived of according to uh, uh, the uh, uh, an architect called Radburn and who was from New Jersey in the 1920s and what they didn't realise was the Radburn designs didn't work but 20, 30 years didn't perturb them. They built these beautiful big housing estates with alleyways and cul-de-sacs that became very effective ways to escape uh, law protection if you needed to. Built in the middle of nowhere with no infrastructure, no transport, often people were moved in before garbage disposal was even a thing. So it very early on in the days brought a bit of an us and them mentality. There was a lot of working class people, good quality folks and families were moved out there. But then as industry kind of downturned, you know, it led to increased unemployment, intergenerational kind of issues around poverty. Awful despair, so terrible despair. And geographic and uh, postcode kind of discrimination. People, you know, if you got that, 2770 postcode uh, on your application, you're not going to be looked at. And so there you are. And you're bringing in all these kind of people who are there who are kind of what, stuck in a cycle of poverty and stuck in a cycle of maybe substance abuse, that kind of thing? You meet some of the most exceptional people and you think, what's the difference between you and me? And the difference is I had people at various points in my life say, I can see your potential. And that's all it took really. And, you know, if you want to do this, I'll walk with you through it. And so that was, you know, one of the big driving forces is to say, if we can put the right love and support around people, because one of the key philosophies that is also at Wayside is no one is a problem to be solved. They're a person to be met. And if someone can walk away from an interaction feeling met rather than worked on, which unfortunately is the predominant prevailing way we interact in our society, even in the charity and the health sector, is they can walk away feeling met rather than worked on. Um, We're both going to walk away more full of life for that precious, unique encounter, but there's a greater chance that that person will finally realise people aren't there to fix or manipulate them, but rather that there are people who are there with them and for them. And that often creates a miracle where... They say, I think I can do this. What does it mean to offer hospitality? Here we are with hospitality again, to offer food Mm. to people without any expectation of anything in return. Hospitality is a rare gift in this country. 
it is a common way of interacting overseas. You know, sometimes I've been in refugee camps on the Thai-Burma border and these families with nothing, when you come say, come and eat this feast and you, th- you know that that must be their week's wage in there as a way of expressing their love and also their highest values about who they are and what they're on about with Their you. dignity too. And dignity, mm. yeah. And it's your job to guts yourself as guilty as you feel in that space. Don't you dare skimp on this. So the extension and the gift of hospitality is saying, Let's meet as equals in this space. Let's share a meal. Let's speak around our hopes and dreams about what this world could be like. And let's do that together. I suppose people hearing this would hear about you having two daughters in this house in Mount Druitt. And you've got people coming to stay with you who Mm. are uh, drug addicts or people who are recently out of prison who might sort of feel, well, were you ever concerned about Mm. the safety of your daughters? We've always wanted our kids to be able to know about our values, not through a chart on a wall, but seeing them lived out uh, up close. So, you know, we, we structured the house. So there was one end of the house that was just us. What was more of an issue was one of our kids is a raging extrovert who absolutely loved it. Every morning would say, Dad, who slept over? Let's make them toast. <laughs> And we'd look through the house to find who was there and, uh, you know, whether they wanted it or not, she'd spread toast for them. The other one was a high introvert. There was this moment once where the police brought a young girl who'd been assaulted to our house and they were waiting for a refuge to come open. They said, can she stay with you for a few days? And she was clearly upset and distressed and and uh, was messed up. But I just love the way one of my kids immediately ran up to make her toast (laughs) and the other one, the quieter introverted one, just sat next to her and just gently stroked her arm and uh, sat next to her on her lap and said, it's going to be okay. And, and, and I thought, wow, you know, they, we all have gifts to contribute into this space and we didn't ask our kids to do that. It was just by accident that uh, they were both having a sick day off school that uh, when this young girl had turned up to us. So I'm really proud of the, the people my kids are becoming now. And uh, one of them says, uh, I want to do exactly what your mum did, just from a psychologically much healthier place. <laughs> That, that's classic teen behaviour, that oh, yeah. is, isn't it? Shading you like that. That's not a compliment. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I'm going to do what you did but not be weird about it and mm. uh, uh, that's marvellous. You now have another family member, Jasmine, mm. who came to live with you. How, what's, what was her story? What can you tell me about how she came to live with you? One of our earliest memories of, of Jazzy was when we first moved into our place in Mount Druitt on, just off Bougainville Road. Uh, she was one of the first kids that came through, you know, when we were helping out at the local youth group. A lot of the kids lived close by, would play with our kids all the time. And this loud, vivacious, bright, bubbly, uh, aggressive redhead, uh, all the stereotypes there. And, you know, that, that, that real strong front was hiding a lot of pain. Her father had not long passed away from complications to do with uh, alcohol and uh, drug use, as well as her mum was really struggling with alcoholism too at the time. And uh, unfortunately, mum got sicker and sicker and sicker. And uh, it turns out that, uh, you know, she had the cirrhosis was um, untreatable. So she also passed away. And Jazz was about 16 at the time. And we knew that there was, she was still at the age where she would have to go into the system uh, to care for her rather than anyone who could have the capacity to, to care for her. So Lisa looked at me and she didn't need to say any words. <laughs> I knew exactly what she was saying. And so we sat with Jazz and we said, we'd love for you to come and live with us. And, but not as a 
not as a, a border in this place, but as part of our family, as, as one of ours. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, she lived with us for about three or four years after that. And she is a very successful bully. Nowadays, she works in fast moving cold storage logistics and she spends her days yelling at truckies, <laughs> which suits her to the ground. So eventually time came in 2016 when you joined the Wayside Chapel and in 2018 you were made pastor and now you're pastor CEO of the Wayside Chapel. Can you describe for people who aren't aware, who don't live in Sydney, who might not be aware of what the Wayside Chapel does? Well, next year Wayside turns 60 years old. And uh, so in 1964, this young couple threw the doors open to, to everyone who was in or around the streets of King's Cross, embracing them in a spirit of love and non-judgment and, you know, a very iconoclastic uh, concept called the family of humanity, something that transcends any boundaries of belief or conformity around gender, sexuality or religion and says, come, let's eat together. You know, that Auntie Lila Watson quote that says, you know, if you've come to save me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because somehow your liberation is tied up with mine, then come, let us walk together. So over the years, we've been a part of working with uh, the medically supervised injecting centre started from the the wayside as an act of civil disobedience. The freedom rides were coordinated from uh, the front doorsteps of wayside. Um, life education, There's, is there anything more Aussie than learning about drugs in the back of a caravan by a giraffe than, <laughs> than that? So uh, Healthy Harold was all a part of that. You know, we were at the heart of Sydney was, was King's Cross and we were, the Wayside Chapel's always been in the middle of it. That area has changed so much. I lived yeah. there with my wife in the 1990s when there was still a nightclub on the corner that used to sell, it was a cocaine distribution point run by, by bikies. <laughs> now, that's long gone. <laughs> that's a very pleasant yeah. luxury restaurant there mm. nowadays. It's the most densely populated part of Australia. Mm. It's, that Potts Point end of it is one of Sydney's richest postcodes now. And the gentrification is creeping closer and forward. But still, King's Cross is still for the gentrification, still a point for drug dealers. I know that because walking through the cross recently, I overheard (laughs) conversations to that effect, which were kind of incredibly grim (laughs) and depressing. So it's a kind of a wild and crazy place these days. Like the gap Mm. between the haves and the haves not is deeply profound now Mm. in in, in that part of Sydney. Yeah. Look, our our vision statement is love over hate. How do we move between love over hate in a way that love can prevail? That is done in the midst of the housed and the homeless, some of the world's richest and their poorest, the gay and the straight, the gendered and the non-binary, and it's all there in the King's Cross area still. Suburbs always moved and changed and grown and developed, and, and that nothing's changing from that perspective. One thing I do love about the community is as soon as someone kind of pipes up in a public forum, oh, why is this bunch of people here or that bunch of people there, there's this great reaction from the community that says, oi, this is the place where anyone could come and be loved and embraced when they couldn't find love and acceptance at home. And that's a proud part of the DNA of our neighbourhood and our community that we're, we're just so honoured to be a part of. We're all made of broken timber. Mm. Is that a central part of your philosophy and the mm. philosophy of the Whiteside, Wayside Chapel that all of us are kind of broken in some way or another? Mm. Well, I think Leonard Cohen said it best in the song Anthem. You know, there's a crack in everything and that's how the light gets in. You know, I'm just one beggar helping another beggar find bread to to quote someone else. You know, we don't pretend to have the answers. We don't try and fix or manipulate anyone. Sometimes the only contribution we can make into someone's life is grief and sadness, saying, I can see your beauty and your potential, but, you know, everyone has a right to make decisions, even poor ones, you know. Christmas is often a season of 
internecine family hatred, mm. tension, <laughs> loneliness, all those, all those marvellous things. How does Christmas exacerbate loneliness in, in your experience? Well, it's often one of those markers in the year that's a tangible way station where you are reminded of the tables you're not welcome around for many who are sleeping on the streets. So Christmas time is one of the most difficult times of year, particularly a whole week, the whole weeks leading up to it is people know, and particularly in today's hyper-connected world, they look on Facebook and they can see the family are planning or a WhatsApp, they're planning to get together and there's an invitation for everyone except them. And that can be for a whole range of reasons. So our Christmas Day street party is Sydney's wildest, brightest and most important celebration on the day that I can think of in the city. Is there lots of laughter around that table? Oh, I tell you what, there is always lots and lots of laughter as we sit back and laugh through the year <laughs> together. You know, Wayside's always got some great stories and so we try and recall them. A couple of weeks ago, someone was chased in because he'd been pickpocketing and he locked himself in a toilet and we said, oh, mate... Um, <laughs> Um, just give him his wallet back. And he said, what's his name? And I said, what does it matter? He goes, I've got six wallets. What's his name? And so we'll tell stories like that. It's just a, a beautiful celebration, but it also says that there is a seat prepared for you and a plate ready for you. You're going to preside over a funeral later today. What is this funeral, John? This funeral is for a dog. <laughs> A dog. <laughs> Birdie the dog. I've got a rush off from here and he's an important dog. He's not just any dog. He's had a few owners and the previous owner passed away and he was passed on to a beautiful member of our community who was at a key crossroads in his life about how he wanted to live. And Birdie saved him. Birdie gave him a reason to wake up every day and to keep moving. We always say salvation comes through the feet and not through the head. Not about what you believe, it's about what you do. And Birdie gave him purpose. And sadly, Birdie, who's a mascot, one of the dogs of Wayside, has now moved on. And so there's already 30 or 40 people gathered in the chapel to give him one of the beautiful Wayside farewells. I'm really conscious of what a radical you are. John, like I said, you're going against everything, all the cultural messages that are out there at the moment. Do you have to feel like, I mean, here you are explaining, I'm asking you to explain yourself essentially. I suppose you must, must be annoying to be being asked to explain yourself all the time like this. Oh, I, 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 now I'm, I'm speechless, Richard. We've come to the end and you finally helped me run out of I words. know. I feel like I should explain myself instead to you. I don't know. That's, that's, that's the upshot of this, I suppose. Oh, look, life's too short to leave anything in the locker, I reckon. And so it's just, it's great to be able to live a life that you say, you know, I, um, I didn't leave anything behind, gave everything a good crack and hopefully can move forward in a way that brings others a bit of hope for the future, particularly at difficult times like the ones we're experiencing now. Well, if you ever get tired of it, there's a career in stand-up comedy that awaits you, sir, I would say. You've got that. You could absolutely do that if you wanted to. It, Just quietly. That's always been plan A. Right, that's plan all A. this ministry stuff, that's a all plan B. stone towards it. <laughs> John, what a pleasure it is. An absolute joy to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Richard. John is the pastor and CEO at the Wayside Chapel. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.